This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to the Talk of Fame Network's Easter edition of the NFL Owners' Annual Winter Meetings. Goose, not sure how Easter and NFL owners go together, but let's give it a try here. And granted, this is a reach, but did NFL owners lay an egg in Easter egg with this new catch rule, uh, which sounds really a lot like the old catch rule, um, and which the NFL's former officiating head, that would be Dean Blandino, said could require more, not fewer replays? Well, you know where I stand in replays. Let your eyes decide, not any camera. The ruling on the field should always stand. The more Park Avenue gets involved, the more screwed up these rules and the game become. Couldn't agree with you more. And, and Ron, what about that national anthem non-policy? Uh, <laughs> Bob McNair said that the league should steer clear of politics. I think religion is where on the fi- as well on the field. Um, what about it? Well, I, I think that uh, McNair just doesn't understand that while he and most of the owners do their politicking in back rooms and with their checkbooks, you know, players uh, uh, who, quite frankly, are primar- primarily people of color in the NFL, they're doing their talking and acting uh, where everyone else can see them, and that's the way, to a degree, it's going to be. I mean, they're going to, uh, obviously, owners are going to have some control, but it's just not going to be that easy to say, you know, uh, uh, you know, you workers stand over there and be quiet. That's uh, They're yeah, not right. going to just dribble, uh, and uh, they're going to speak out. I often just dribble here at home. (laughs) More and more each year I find myself dribbling. More and more each year, that's right. Uh, Well, I'd like to hear more from you guys on both subjects, and we will. Um, But first, let's get to what's in store for our listeners today. We have with us Chargers assistant head coach George Stewart, the man who will present Terrell Owens for induction in Canton this summer, as well as former Steelers nose tackle Casey Hampton. Also join us is Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot from Cleveland for our weekly series on the best players not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as well as Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle to talk about the owners' meetings that just ended. And Gooseman used to go to owners' meetings, so did all of us, but we don't do it anymore. You miss them? Not in the least. You know, once upon a time, we shared the hotel space with the owners. Now they cloister the writers down the road. It becomes a commute every morning and night. All the casual contact is gone by the NFL's design. If these were the ground rules back in 1994, I never would have run into Jerry Jones in the lobby bar at 2 yeah, That's right. Well, it's not quite the same. But you know what, guys? Nothing is, including our weather here in the Northeast, Ron. No snow. We broke right 50 degrees this week. How about that? It's great. Uh, anyway, guess good things got to be ahead. And they are. So don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. As we mentioned earlier, the Talk of Fame Network, the NFL has finally addressed the catch rule, and I guess we'll see if that's a good thing. I know it can't be worse than a year ago, and I also know Atlanta's Dan Quinn this week said it's going to lead to more fumbles and more completions. And you know what, guys? I, I guess that's okay, so as, long, so long as it doesn't lead to more delays and, and some of those jaw-dropping decisions. But um, anyway, we'll just see. Um, but speaking of catches, I saw something here caught my eye. The league's all-time leading receiver, Jerry Rice, and friend of the show, Jerry Rice. He was back in the news. Got engaged this week to his longtime girlfriend, Latish Palayo, and good for him. Rod, you know what? I guess that ups his career receiving total to 1,550 catches, right? It, it does indeed, Clark. Great catch by Jerry, and uh, one he doesn't have to worry about going to 
further review in New York. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No Al Riveron involved here. Okay, speaking of catches, we have a lot to catch up to this week. And uh, oh, geez, I forgot to mention um, Sunday's April Fool's Day. I mean, it's my day. It's April Fool's Day. Yeah. Um, but uh, although I know some people think that's reserved for the first round of the draft, with someone like, oh, maybe the Jets in 1995 make tight end Kyle Brady the ninth pick of the draft. You guys remember that? The fans oh, yeah. went. What? You gotta be kidding me! Oh, it gotta be April Fool's. Well, no, it, it wasn't. Uh, but um, you know, I just thinking of that. I mean, April Fool's. I, I, I was thinking, hey, if you were to start an April Fool's Hall of Fame, and we always do that. I mean, April Fool's. And I'm talking about getting rid of the apostrophe guy and personifying it to April Fool's, as in idiots, morons, you and me, that sort of thing. And, and I'm talking about in NFL history, Goose. Where would you start your April Fool's Hall? Fame. Tony Mandarich, who fooled everyone in becoming the <laughs> second one. overall pick of the 1989 draft, ahead of Hall of Famers Barry Sanders, Deion Sanders, and Derek wow. Thomas. That's a now good he hung one. On, he hung on for seven seasons, never went to a Pro Bowl, never had an impact, certainly not worthy of the second overall pick, which is why Ron Wolf was hired to fix that Green Bay mess a few years later. Good, good one. Try to top that, Ron Borges. Well, uh, that'll be difficult to do. Uh, but I would say uh, the Patriots made one of the great draft day trades. They traded to get uh, to be able to pick Chris Singleton and Ray Agnew and gave up the rights to Junior Seau. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Oops. <laughs> Things happen. And a well, year later, the guy said, Joe Mendes, who made that move, said, I'd do it again. I went, Really? <laughs> <laughs> say it ain't so, Joe. No, please, no. Hey, Ronnie, I'm going with someone you know. Because you and I both worked in Baltimore when this guy owned the Colts, and that's Tiger Bob Ursay. Um, yeah, I mean, um, so bad. His own mother called him a devil on earth. That's true, uh, in the Chicago <laughs> Tribune. Um, anyway, you hate, also, you hate it when that happens. When you you hate it when that happens. Uh, it means no allowance that week. Uh, he's also <laughs> the only guy I know who traded away two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, Unitas and John. Now, we also trade Burt right, Bert Jones, front of the show. And he stole, of course, that city's most prized possession without being penalized. Hey, by, by the way, Ron, also I might mention the good people of Irwindale, California, who spent $20 million to keep your Raiders, and they got nothing from your good friend Al Davis but a hole in the ground for their money. <laughs> Good investment if you're in the excavation business. Otherwise, right. not so good. i got to throw in one quick last one, though. Yeah. Irving Fryer, who, before he became a great receiver with the Dolphins and Eagles, once left the Patriots locker room at halftime of a game and got in a car accident on Route 2, ran into a tree. Nobody even knew where he was going. <laughs> That's a pretty good start for all of infamy. Okay, well, guys, uh, speaking of the Hall of Infamy, the owners' meetings were in Florida this week. A lot going on there. Goose, Dominican Sue wasn't there, but he was a topic of a lot of discussion because he signed a one-year deal with the L.A. Rams. So this gives the Rams now a defensive tackle tandem of Sue and Aaron Donald. Your historian, your Dr. Data, when's the last time you remember anyone, anyone lining up a better pair at that position? Try the 1969 Kansas City Chiefs with Buck Buchanan and Curly Cope. Both are in the Hall of Fame. And I'd also put the 62 Detroit Lions up there with Alex Karras and Roger Brown with their combined 10 Pro Bowls. You can make an argument that both belong in the Hall as well. How about the Steelers? Anyone playing next to Mean Joe? Anyone? Hey, they had <laughs> Ernie Holmes. He was a dangerous yeah, dude. Yeah, it's pretty good tandem. Hey, Ron, um, um, Cleveland's Hugh Jackson, he was also uh, at those meetings. Um, and he said there's a franchise quarterback in this year's draft class. Except he didn't say which one, which frankly is no surprise. I mean, that's been Cleveland's problem all along. They've never figured that one out. What do you make of that? 
Well, I think that there's some cautionary advice here for the rest of the teams. Whoever the Browns like, don't like them. It's <laughs> yeah. your best chance. Well, they've got two chances here. They've got the first pick and the fourth pick. So, you know, one of those two. They've they got should, to get it right. That's a, they should take two quarterbacks. They should take two quarterbacks. That would be great. <laughs> okay. One other item of interest here from this week, guys. The mayor of London. Yeah, and that's not New London, Connecticut or uh, London, Ohio. It's London, England. Angling not only for an NFL team. But for a Super Bowl, Ron, I'll start with you. What are the chances that either of those happen? Well, I think he's got a better chance, frankly, at a Super Bowl than a franchise. Imagine the site fee the league would charge the good taxpayers of the U.K. Bricks it be damned. <laughs> you know, that's just that'd be great. Uh, but the NFL would get their, their uh, pound of flesh out of their pound. But at least they wouldn't get a dog of a game like they usually do in London. Yeah. Plus, I don't know how the logistics would work out. I mean, I just don't know how, unless you have a separate European league. Uh, yeah, you, you need two teams at least. I think they will get a Super Bowl, but I don't think – I think there will have to be two teams in Europe, not one for that to happen. If you're going to travel to Europe, maybe make it a two-game trip, not a one-game trip. If, if it's a one-game trip, those trips to Europe put a team at a huge competitive disadvantage. I think there would have to be two, and I think Germany would be a, a, a possibility. Well, Goose, you mentioned a, a Super Bowl. You could see that happening first. Do you see that happening, let's say, in the next five years or ten years? I'd say six, seven years out. I think they'll do the next wave of American stadiums and then expand into uh, the international brand. Ron, do you agree? Could you guys kind of imagine what the PR department of a German football team would be like? Your peppers are not in order. <laughs> <laughs> and they could keep running Hogan's Heroes reruns, you know, and when team's not the field. Well, that's the signal that we're banging the drum again for someone to get to Canton. And that someone this time is former Colts wide receiver Jimmy Orr. With our Rick Gossin doing the banging. In fact, he did it this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. And Gooseman... You know what? I loved it, and I'll tell you what. I think Jimmy's still wide open in the end zone of Miami. Would you tell them all to throw him the ball? Get Jerry Hill out of throwing the ball. Yeah, Jimmy Orr caught pass for a living, but sadly his career is known more for that one football that wasn't thrown to yep. him, which you mentioned. Right. Final play of the first half, Super Bowl three, trailing 7-0. Colts run a flea flicker. Quarterback Earl Morrill hands the ball to Tom Maddy, who laterals it back to Morrill. Or sped past the New York defenders who were reading a run to the end zone where he stood alone, frankly waving his arms for Morrill to see him, but Morrill didn't. Instead of throwing a ball to Orr for a game-tying touchdown, he threw it underneath to fullback Jerry Hill. It was intercepted by Jet safety Jim Hudson, and the AFL champions would go on to pull off a stunning 16-7 upset of the NFL champs. And Orr's career was lost in the pages of history. Now, he played in an era when quality of the catch mattered more than quantity of catches. He never caught 100 passes in a season. Only two receivers did in the 1960s. He never had a 1,000-yard season. Only 36 wide receivers managed those in the 1960s. 15 wideouts managed them alone in 2017. It was a different era back then. Back in 1962, in Orr's finest season, the NFL teams were running the ball more than they were throwing it. They were passing an average of 27 times per game in 1962. In today's NFL, offenses are throwing the ball 35 times a game. More passes translate into more catches, more yards, more touchdowns, and a bunch of inflated statistics, which brings us back to quality of catch, specifically the quality of Jimmy Orr's catches. He scored 66 touchdowns with his 400 career receptions. That's a touchdown every 6.1 catches. 
Jerry Rice was well regarded as the greatest receiver ever, averaged a touchdown every 7.8 catches. Three times in his career, Orr led the NFL with an average per catch, 27 yards in 1958, 26 yards in 1968, and 22 in 1964. The NFL leader last season was Detroit's Marvin Jones at 18 yards per catch. Orr's career average of 19.8 yards per catch ranks eighth all time. Does Orr belong in the Hall of Fame? Not if you judge receivers on quantity, but if you judge receivers on the quality of their catches, his career deserves discussion. If Earl Morrill had spotted him in the end zone in Super Bowl three, Orr's career may have already had that discussion. Yeah, I, I love Jimmy Orr, Goose. I, I just wish Earl Morrill did in that game, too. Is his failure to throw him the ball there, Goose, would that be considered immoral behavior? <laughs> thank you thank you thank you okay we're going to stop right here but when we return we'll hear more about this week's owners meeting from someone who was there hall of fame voter john mcclain you're listening to the talk of fame network this is the talk of fame network on sb nation radio from the o'reilly auto parts studios here's clark judge rick goslin and ron borges well, every so often on the Talk of Fame Network, we need a reality check. When that happens, we check in with our longtime and good, very good friend, Hall of Fame voter John McClain of the Houston Chronicle. Now, John was at this week's owners meeting, so he can shed some light on just what happened there. And, John, let's start with your team's owner, and I'm talking about Robert McNair of the Houston Texans. Um, he was criticized for saying the NFL playing fields are not places, quote, for political or religious statements, unquote. And then later for trying to defend Carolina owner Jerry Richardson, who's selling the team. You among his critics? Ever, I've known Bob for over 20 years, and I, I see people labeling him a racist because he doesn't want protests on the field. And I right. think 99% of the owners feel the same way. He just says so. And it's like he said, you can get rid of the owners, you can get rid of the players, but you can't get rid of the fans. And he said, we like to listen to the fans. So he shouldn't have said it, and I'm just – I, every every owner's meetings, I sit down with him and do a long interview, and I'm just sorry that I didn't get that interview. Because once he did it the next day, I think they told him, yeah, you don't need to be talking anymore. So mm-hmm. Bob didn't have any more comments. And it he, he he's not stupid. He knows what he says is going to make some people mad, but he also knows that it's going to that a lot of people the fans sponsors ticket holders club suite holders most of them like that they've only had one game in which they took a knee and that was last year after what he said after ESPN the magazine quoted him saying you can't let the inmates run the prison he said and still says he was talking about the league office and the owners compared to the owners not the players but the damage was done and so i see you know i see a guy gets called a racist and he's had a african-american general manager he did for 12 years he had last year assistant gm slash vp of football operations african-american assistant head coach director college scouting quarterback used to have top two pr guys and i've never known him in conversations private or public when i was interviewing him ever have any hint of racism he is a republican he's conservative he's 80 years old and he knows what he wants he he still equates protests with disrespecting the flag Mm -hmm. which many people do even though we all know the players say it has nothing to do with the flag it has to do with trying to get attention and bring social awareness to the injustice that goes on around the country so 
Uh, I don't think he should have said it. I think he should keep quiet about it, but he did. As far as Jerry Richardson, he and Jerry have been good friends for years. Jerry was the owner most instrumental in helping him get a, fran- get a franchise, and when he was asked about him, he defended him. And it doesn't mean he con- condones the things that Jerry Richardson has been accused of, that, uh, but he stood by a man that has been his good friend for a long time, and he got a lot of criticism for that, too. You know something else, John? I think he's right about the outrage and the anger from the public. I mean, I live here in the Northeast. I hear it all the time from casual fans. People say, I, I don't watch the game anymore because of that. But I, I think he's right about that outrage. But I also think I think there's a simple solution, and, and that's to keep teams in locker rooms until the anthem has been played. And it was done once. I think they should do it again. The way it you, used you to go, be. And yeah, are you good with that? Would you go yeah, with that? Oh, yeah, but I also think they can't do a rule like the NBA because players would defy it and say, okay, what are you going to do about it? And then it would become an even bigger deal. If they would quit talking about it, you know, they've offered money for the to the Players Coalition, of which some are members and some are not, to help them uh, put that money toward a lot of their social causes. And that's caused some players say they're not going to kneel again. Others say they are. And, you know, you don't have to sign a player who kneels. You know, you can hate Colin Kaepernick, you can hate Eric Reed because of what they did, but that's not collusion if you don't want them. You know, collusion is when you collude with somebody and say, hey, let's don't do this. And McNair got deposed. He was the first one, and Kaepernick was in the room. And uh, and it, there was no animosity from what I've been told about what was in there, none whatsoever, and it was just the first of many that they're going to do, see if they can prove the case. John, uh, did the catch rule clarification this week get your approval? It did, Rick, for this reason. From now on, when they go to the ground, it doesn't mean squat. <laughs> you know, you wonder, you go back to Calvin Johnson. You what sure? Took, what took so long? Then uh, uh, Des Bryant, Rich McKay, chairman of the competition committee, said that Des Bryant non-catch showed us something need to be done. Well, what took so long? Yeah. You know, it seems to me when I think you catch it, you control it. I think the controversy is still going to be you catch the ball, you get hit, it comes out. Somebody's going to say it's incompletion. Somebody's going to say it's a fumble. But no longer can a guy take it to the ground and it hit and it move. That's no longer involved. Secondly, who owns the town now? The Astros or the Texans? <laughs> the Texans are always on the town in Houston, no matter what the Astros and Rockets do. Rockets have the best record in the NBA. And, um, in fact, a friend of mine has worked with the Rockets for 15 years. He said he, they're just amazed at, like right now, the Astros are about to open. And they're opening with the Rangers. And I'll tell you something I believe strongly. If you win a World Series, you should be at home on a night where nobody else plays like the NFL does and honor your champion. Like, it should be the Astros and the Rangers in Houston. You know, this traditional Cincinnati opener was always such a special time, holiday for the kids and businesses, and it was special. And then, of course, because of TV, they had everybody start playing. But that's something I feel very strongly about because if the Astros go up and lose four of the Rangers and they come back for the opener, of which I paid a lot of money for tickets, <laughs> it's going to kind of be like anticlimactic. But football, as you know, Rick, no matter what happens in Dallas, football and Cowboys, <laughs> of course, but football's king everywhere in Texas. Let me hey, Ron, when, when, just do... bet the under on four Ranger victories. 
<laughs> hey, hey, Ron, when, when Goose yeah. asked that question, who owns this town, you know, Houston, the Astros, the Texans, he forgot John McClain because the answer is easy. Who owns McClain. that town, the Astros, the Texans, or John McClain? The answer is easy, right? That's right. McClain <laughs> owns the town. I got to tell you, John, he just broke our producer, uh, Robert's heart. You know, he's the Altuve of producers, let me tell you. I mean, he's got his Astros hat on front, what's in backwards. So. I'll tell you something interesting, guys. Altuve wins MVP. James Harden's going to win MVP. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but after the way I watched Deshaun Watson play and averaged 34 points a game at six starts, 39 in his last five starts on a pace to throw 43 touchdown passes and run for six, and they've tried to improve their team, and if people are healthy, and he will be healthy, um, could he have a chance to be MVP? And I wonder, has a team ever, a city ever done it three, three, sport, three seasons in a row? Wow. That's a good, good question. question. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Uh, actually, I was going to ask you about Deshaun because, uh, you know, Billy O'Brien, who's a friend of both of ours, of course, to me, he's been one of the unluckiest coaches in football history when it comes to quarterbacks, ailing quarterbacks. Uh, so, what's the latest on, on, on Watts' general health? And it sounds like you believe he's the answer to their quarterback issues. Oh, yeah. I've never, I don't know that I've ever seen a rookie quarterback who was as productive as he was in a short period of time that included going to New England and Seattle and just tearing him up and then the defense blew it for both in both games on the last series and as far as O'Brien one of the reasons he got a four-year extension was because he coached Watson he he did the game plan he called the plays and there were a lot of people saying you got to fire Bill O'Brien I'm like why in the world would you fire a guy who was responsible for what we saw which was better than anything Houston has seen since the run and shoot with Warren Moon in 1993 and that's a long time to wait and the Texans had 20 players on our last year 13 starters I've never seen a Houston team and not many that had that much and they were playing with a bunch of mullets at a lot of positions and <laughs> <laughs> and once you know, quarter once Watson went down the day after the Astros won the World Series, you know you go from emotionally you're in the penthouse, and then all of a sudden, boom, you crash land in the basement, and uh, and so now people are so excited about him coming back. He's going to do some things in OTAs and the and the mandatory mini camp. O'Brien said he'll probably throw some seven on seven. He'll do some individual drills, not team. So he can stay sharp with his receivers, and then when they go to camp, he'll be ready to go. And obviously, that leads me to the next logical person to talk about, and that's JJ Watt. Uh, you know, what's his status at this point? Do you believe he can stay in one piece? And if he does, uh, what does him joining forces with the Honey Badger do for the Texans defense? It would be a miracle based on the two back operations he had the, two years ago and the tibial fracture he had last year in his left knee and then the season before that he had had his core muscles reattached in philadelphia and he said that was by far the worst he'd ever had so he's had to overcome major injuries the last three years and i people ask me nobody knows at what level he can come back he turned 29 last week you know he hadn't played a lot so the wear and tear on his body's been from rehab and bill o'brien said i've been around here long enough to know you do not bet against J.J. Watt. Well, what if he came back and played to run well and only got eight or nine sacks a year? People go, oh, man, he's terrible. His career's over. But the fact is that'd still be pretty productive. If they're healthy, they would have Watt. They would have Clowney, Whitney Merciless, Bernard McKinney. Clowney and McKinney will get extensions this offseason. They love their nose tackle, D.J. Reader. 
those guys would be in the front seven. And their inside linebacker, Zach Cunningham, instead of hitting the rookie wall last year, got better as the season progressed. And one of the reasons they cut Brian Cushing because Cunningham is the starter and they have another guy named Dylan Coles, a backup. But they got talent up there, and they were really happy with the Honey Badger. And Aaron Colvin, a corner they signed from Jacksonville, who they believe was one of the best slot corners in the league, so did the Jaguars. And so then they don't have a first or second, but they've got three threes and they've got three sixes. So new general manager Brian Gain, uh, he's still got to work on the offense primarily because you've got to build everything around Watson. John McLean, as always, thanks for the time and welcome back to the home of the World Series champs, Houston. <laughs> I'll be back there on Thursday. And Clark and Rick and Ron, thank you guys very much. I always love reading your stuff and listening to your talk show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You. you got it, John. Thanks, John. That was Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. Up next, it's Terrell Owens' presenter. That would be George Stewart. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've tried in the past to get wide receiver Terrell Owens on the show, but he or his agent hasn't responded, and no problem. I mean, I, I, I get that. So we reached out for the next best guy, and that would be Terrell Owens' presenter this summer for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Though, I'm going to be honest with you, in my mind, there is no next best about anything that Chargers special teams coordinator and assistant head coach George Stewart does. Because I've known George for years, dating back to our days in San Francisco, and considered more than an ally and one of the best coaches in the league. He's a good friend, and we're delighted to have him with us today. So, George, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a long time since we've talked, but it's good to hear you on the phone. And um, first things first. Surprised to have Theo choose you to present him in Canton? Are you, are you surprised? And, and how do you tell you? I'm very excited about it. Uh, that's something that um, he had talked to me about previously. And, of course, you know, obviously it was his third year going into um, consideration. So we had talked pre- previously before. Uh, I've had a lot of guys that I have coached, you know, with Jerry included and Roger Woodson. Those guys have gone in and uh, just interested to say that deal works. But I'm very excited about it. By the way, if any of you listeners are hearing George for this first time and you want to get him for voiceovers, he's available, okay? <laughs> Just contact us. He's available. Perfect. He's great. Perfect. Um, George, I, I, I'm sort of curious. I mean, I don't expect you to, to spill the beans here, but generally, what do you plan to say about T.O. when you do, you do a video presentation? But what do you, what do you right. plan to say? Well, I'm going to leave that up until the 4th of August. I, I have some things that I've considered uh, in terms of putting it on paper, Clark, but um, mostly I think he's um, misunderstood more than anything, and I think that would be the brunt of the speech in introducing Terrell Owens, but we will probably wait until the 4th of August before it's all put on paper and, uh, and presented. George, it's no secret that uh, T.O. had his troubles with coaches and teammates and is often portrayed as a divisive figure. How did you view him? And how were you able to get along so well with him? Uh, the thing with Terrell that I did not have an issue with is he is kind of similar to how I was brought up in a lot of respects. Uh, a young man from the South, a young man that um, 
was kind of raised by his grandmother. I was raised by a lot of people back in Arkansas. My mother did a great job with me as well. But uh, there's a lot of layers. And what I mean by layers, sometimes you can't read a book by the cover. Uh, sometimes you can't peel back enough layers of that onion. I think with Terrell, uh, you really have to go to the molten rock. And that was one thing in terms of a coach. Um, I had to reach deep down inside to understand who he was as a person. And once I understood what he was as a person, who he was as a person, uh, the navigation was easy. But he is, he is not a guy that will give trust early. You have to earn his trust. And I think uh, our relationship was based on that from day one. And uh, it worked extremely well. So why did so many teams move on generally so quickly from him? Did, did they uh, not I would, reach down? I, I would think with my situation, I was with Terrell for eight years. And those teams that had him, the guys that have worked with him, Three years, two years, not enough time. Like I said, you have to understand him to know who he is. And that trust is earned by him. And there's a lot of people that I've worked with very similar to Terrell. And uh, maybe not as outspoken as Terrell, but uh, the trust factor is real big with him. You know, one thing about uh, T.O. George, I always sort of felt when I watched him play, and uh, uh, to me there was never any doubt how much he wanted to win. Uh, and what he was willing to do to win. I was at that Super Bowl, of course, where he played with a broken right. leg. and would have been MVP, frankly, if they had won the game. Right. Maybe he was MVP anyway, frankly. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, where does that wellspring of desire to win, in his case, come from? And did it sometimes work against him? Is this Ron? Yes. Ron, I, I, I will say this about Terrell. And, again, going back to his upbringing, you asked where that came from. I think there was a young man that was um, – brought up and we used the term bullied now in terms of being bullied i think he was the kid that was brought up being bullied uh he was a dark young man in terms of skin color he had buck teeth as we know um he was not uh, a favorite of the neighborhood he had to be in house at a certain time he had to read bible scriptures with his, with his grandmother he had to be in the house at six o'clock so he was kind of looked at as being different i think he was bullied as a child um he went on to get braces so his teeth are excellent he has a great smile but uh, that will to prove people that he belonged. I think anybody who's been bullied, anybody who's been wrong as a child, you have those scars. And I think those scars stayed with him his whole life until he got to the National Football League. He was a, a walk-on in college. So, again, he wasn't a scholarship guy. He was a guy who was looked over. And once he had a chance to have some success, uh, I think that brought on a different demeanor on Terrell Owens in terms of I showed you I wanted to prove I can do it. And I'm not speaking for him. This is my conclusion. That's what I feel about it. That's the way I feel about Terrell in terms of a young man that was probably a little different growing up. And uh, he probably had a platform to prove that he was a much better football player than what people gave him credit for. Uh, you, know, you were in San Francisco, obviously, for a long time with him when he made the – you were there when he made that game-winning catch against the – Packers with three seconds to go there where, you know, that was KO City. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you saw the night he, uh, he, uh, he caught what was then a record 20 passes on Jerry Rice Day. I thought there was probably no accident. Absolutely. Uh, what's your uh, enduring memory of, of him and, and, and that ability that he seemed to have to rise to the moment? The thing, Ron, that I remember most, and you mentioned two great examples. The example I remember uh, that's a, a, a gold standard for me, we went to Atlanta, and I'm not sure if it was the 2000 season or 2001 season, I forget, but we were down 21 nothing, or maybe 14 nothing at halftime, and Terrell has not caught a pass. He has not been included in the offense, 
And um, I remember him being at halftime, and usually most star players will complain and, you know, grope and moan. And But this guy was singing hymns. He was singing church hymns at halftime. And he came back out and run. This was the first time that that phrase, get your popcorn ready, came up. He came to me and said, Coach Duke, get your popcorn ready. I said, what are you talking about? He said, get your popcorn ready because I'm getting ready to put on a show. And I think he had 10 catches for about 185 or 86 yards, four touchdowns, and a walk-off touchdown in overtime. And to me, that resonated a lot about Terrell Owens in terms of what kind of competitive he was because that didn't bother him the first half because he did not catch a pass. But he knew that he was ready to put on the show the second half. And that term, get your popcorn ready, that's when it first hit. What kind of popcorn did you get, George? <laughs> I just had the plain. You know, Clark, I'm not a caramel guy. I'm not a butter. I just had the plain popcorn, so it was all good. We're speaking with George Stewart, the assistant head coach with the San Diego Chargers, also the special teams coordinator, and the man who will present Terrell Owens in Canton this summer for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We're speaking to him on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, George, I want to go back to what you said earlier, that he sure. is a guy whose trust – you really have to earn. Um, how do you earn it? And I mean, how do you do that? You apparently did it. I mean, there are a lot of people in and around the 49ers, the Cowboys, the Eagles, who weren't able to do it. How do you earn his trust? I guess the first thing, Clark, is uh, to be open, but to be open to him as a person, uh, to find out more about him than what he shows. And you have to do it all digging. Like I said, I had to do a lot of digging. But I can relate to Terrell because there are some in my background very similar to Terrell Owens' background in terms of how he grew up, how he was raised. So I had a commonality in that respect. Also, uh, the time invested with him. Uh, again, he is a type of young man. And, and as popular as he is now, I, I bet you at some point in his life he was a loner. Uh, I know when he first came to San Francisco, he did not hang with Jerry Rice. He did not hang with Steve Young. He right. surrounded himself with people similar to him, the undrafted free agent type guys. He had a good friend named Jim Ferris that was an undrafted free agent. Uh, he did not go to the head trainer. He went to those intern guys to tape his ankles. At that time, I was the special teams coordinator there. He did not hang with his position coach. He hung with me, and that time the special teams coach was kind of the lower rung of the coaching staff. So I think he put himself in situations that he identified himself with. And like I said, with, uh, with, with, with the uh, advent of being a star player coming out of his own being into it, and getting out of that shell, it kind of changed him where he is, his popularity changed. And, of course, with that, uh, I think you saw a different person. But that's where it all started from was the trust that we had going into it early as a player and coach, and coach relationship. George, you also said you thought he was one of the most or is one of the most misunderstood athletes or players out there. What don't people understand about Terrell Owens that maybe they should? Uh, I, I think this, and Clark, let me put this in a nutshell. I say this a lot you know, to people who ask that same question. Clark, Judge, if you won the lotto, $3 million, $4 million, $500 million, I don't care what the figure is. I don't know if Clark Judge backgrounds ever had the type of money in his, in his pocket. And I look at the Kennedys. The Kennedys, if they won a lotto, probably would not react as Clark Judge because they have always had money. And I look at Terrell Owens as being some, place, some person, again, that's misunderstood, that hasn't had that fame, hasn't had that. He wasn't that guy. Adrian Peterson, I coach Adrian Minnesota. Adrian probably was a great player when he was in Pop Warner. Fame to Adrian was not a big deal, but I think with fame with Terrell, 
it changed him just a little bit. I'm quite sure he would mm-hmm. tell you that as well, but I think that proof that he wanted to prove to himself or prove to others, he does belong. And I think that was the, the, the crux of the question that you asked me. It, the money, uh, the, the person doesn't change. I think that sometimes when celebrity is brought upon you or something is brought upon you you're not used to, it may change that person. George, what, what made T.O. special, and how did he benefit practicing with Jerry Rice? For several years. Oh, I, I think what made him special was that I know he came in as a young man that was a very raw receiver. He did have work ethic. That's one thing he had from day one. I noticed that as a special teams coordinator. I couldn't wait to get him to cover kickoffs because he had the work ethic. But to be around a guy like Jerry, and I always said Jerry was the encyclopedia. He's the dictionary. Whenever you need to look up something, go to Jerry Rice. And he breathed the same air Jerry breathed. He was in the same seat that Jerry was in. He was in the same meeting room. So I think he learned a lot from Jerry in terms of how to do it the right way, how to be a professional, and his will to win. And I've said this before. You know, Terrell always used to tell me, Coach, if the ball is in my hands, we have a better chance to win the football game. And that was so true with us as an organization. Uh, with him and Jeff Garcia in terms of throwing the football, the connection they had on the football field was truly unbelievable. It was with Steve Young as well. So uh, those are the things that made Terrell Lawrence great. But I think a lot of it has to do with – with Jerry as well. George, did you understand at all, because I think it was kind of obvious that Terrell didn't, why some of the Hall of Fame voters had such a tough time uh, initially sort of maybe warming up to his candidacy, number one. And number two, do you think he and maybe everybody in football has a proper grip on, on the fact that the guys who are going in, they belong in there too, and there's only so many seats? Sure. Sure, I can. I can. I think Terrell can probably answer the second part of that question for you. But the first part, absolutely. And I think Terrell to this day will probably admit there were some things that he probably did wrong as a young football player. You know, 22, 24, 25, 26 years old. Uh, we all go through things. I've went through things at 25, 26 years old that I would probably do differently now. I'm quite sure he would probably say the same thing. You know, I, I did too, George, except I just can't remember them. <laughs> I, I can't remember. Well, Clark, I, hey. Clark, I think that's where I am right now too, but I'm quite sure at some point I, I, was, I was that way as well. Yeah, that part's a George, guarantee. <laughs> George, we've got about 30 seconds. Let's make this real quick. Why do you okay. think he, he seemed to have trouble with his quarterbacks? I mean, Garcia, he said some things about him, Romo, Don McNabb, that maybe he regretted later. I mean, what do you think happened? Well, Clark, uh, again, I think that's a question Terrell would have to answer, but I will say okay. this. Um, I heard this through the grapevine. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think Jeff Garcia did an outstanding job uh, when he had a chance to speak in Terrell's behalf, you know, to go in the Hall of Fame. And that's a lot about Jeff Garcia. And, again, I think that, that that's a question you may have to ask Terrell, but, again, going back to the quarterbacks he's had, I don't know if Donovan was able to speak, but I, I heard Jeff did a great job, and that says a lot about Jeff. And it says a lot about him as a person. But it says a lot about him as the respect that he has for Terrell Owens as a football player. Hey, George, speaking about outstanding jobs, you've just done one. Thanks for the time, and, and we'll see you this summer in Canton. Thank you, Clark. I truly appreciate it. That was Chargers special teams coordinator and assistant head coach George Stewart. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost finished with the first half, so let's hear it, Hockley. That's the two-minute warning. Yeah, thank you very much. Yep, that means we're just about out of time, but it also means we're on to the two-minute drill. So let's get started, guys. Pro Football Hall of Fame was voted the best sports attraction for sports fans. What or who gets your vote? Jerry World. <laughs> the Pro Football Hall of Fame, of course, although the Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs is a close set. 
<laughs> Hard to figure out this year. The new catch rule or the NCAA bracket? Both have defied logic, but I'll go with the NCAA bracket. 11-seated Loyola in San Antonio is illogical. I would say that the new catch rule still has some catches in it, while the NCAA bracket was easy. UConn women. Yeah, I love them. A bigger catch for New England. Danny Shelton or the burglar who knocked off Gronk's pad? Shelton, he'll be around to help this fall. That burglar won't. <laughs> Agreed. Anybody who regularly wears a Samoan lava lava is a big catch <laughs> and a big guy. Sister Jean, Jean Washington, Sister Sledge or Twisted Sister? Sister Christian, Night Ranger. <laughs> oh. Sister Jean, she has God on her side and on Loyola's. <laughs> If his Cleveland's Hughes Jackson says Tyrod Taylor is not, quote, a bridge quarterback, unquote, then what is he? Hugh Jackson's slim hope right now for job security. <laughs> he is an inaccurate quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the grass greener for New England's Deron Harmon? Costa Rica, obviously. Exactly Costa Rica, which is why you don't try to import your own weed when you go there. Johnny Manziel is working out again saying, quote, this is the last of my chances, unquote. What chances? Ask Colin Kaepernick. He's standing right behind Menzel in that NFL unemployment line. <laughs> I would say this. Resurrections happen more often in pro sports than any place but the Bible. If you're John Nets owner, John Mara, what do you do with Odell Beckham Jr.? Trade him to the Rams or Eagles. Those are the two teams this offseason collecting all the pro bowlers. I keep him, but I make the team's expectation for his behavior, if they have any, clear. And then sticks to him when he doesn't do it. Stephen Jones says the Cowboys will talk about Des Bryant, quote, when it's time, unquote. So when is it time? The eve of the OTAs when Bryant may be more willing to take a pay cut and join his teammates on the field. I would say the time is just before his ongoing declining skills make him obsolete. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. We have Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and former Pittsburgh Steelers nose tackle Casey Hampton in the second hour. This is the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. Casey Hampton, Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot in this hour, as well as breaking down the best of the University of Oklahoma's NFL players. But first... Well, first, there was a bizarre story coming out of, well, your favorite town last week, Ron. Oaktown. Fox- no, it wasn't. Fa- <laughs> that's right. It was. It wasn't Foxborough <laughs> or Boston. It was Oaktown. Um, and that's where a Hall of Famer and friend of the show, Rod Woodson, shredded new coach John Gruden and the Raiders' off-season moves after he and the team's coaching staff were fired, which in turn, of course, provoked Raiders linebacker Bruce Irvin to do what you, know, you might expect from a Raider. Return the fire and shredded Wilson. Ron, Raiders, internal fighting, verbal jabs, couple of roundhouses. you got to love it. It seems like the good old days, right? Exactly. Back to the future. And, <laughs> the future. <laughs> you know, and i got to say, I feel Rod's pain. You know, as a guy who just got deep-sixed myself by the Boston Herald, <laughs> as part of a 25% staff cut, I understand shredding management. You know, it's an t- easy temptation. But Rod is smarter than that and never likely to have to ever share his gold jacket with a guy who looks like Chucky. Well, Goose, speaking of Rod Woodson, he said Michael Crabtree is better than Jordy Nelson, and Derek Carr is no Aaron Rodgers, and that owner, That's Mark true. Davis, better have an 
out in his contract for Gruden because, well, John only won 50% of his games. Then he said, gold jacket in his arm, he didn't want to sound like, quote, a scorn lover because I was fired by the Raiders, unquote. But, Gooseman, that's exactly what he does sound like. Remember, 16 games ago, the Raiders were a 12-1 team and maybe just a healthy quarterback away from the Super Bowl, and that's frustration you're seeing from Woodson. There's no patience in this league. Jack Del Rio was building a contender. John Gruden is not a builder. He inherited a Super Bowl-caliber team in Tampa, but that isn't the case in Oakland this time around. This was more of a shot by Woodson that Mark Davis and his lack of patience than it was at John Gruden. Hey, Ronnie, uh, quick now. I bet I, I'll be honest. I, I, I think he's right about Gruden. I mean, if he's a $100 million man... What does that make your guy, Bill Belichick? Rich. Very rich. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, I agree with Gooseman. I mean, uh, look, this is a guy uh, who, you know, inherited a Super Bowl team, and lo and behold, took him to the Super Bowl. After that, into the dumper. (laughs) That sounded like Robert saying, we got to go to commercial. I got one more Raiders (laughs) question for you guys, but I I can't get to it here. But uh, we've got to go to break. When we turn, I will get to it, I promise you. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, remember when I said I had another question for you guys? That was in the earlier segment. Ron, I do. Yes, sir. And it goes like this. Um, owners this week just passed the Raiders' $1.8 billion stadium idea for Las Vegas, which is great, right? I mean, but that stadium doesn't open until 2020. Right. So my question is... Where do the Raiders play in 2019? Because their lease in Oakland ends in 2018, and I don't think the city really wants them or do, wants to do business with them. I can't see them sharing Levi's Stadium with the 49ers either. And I don't know, um, you know, maybe Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas is the next best, best option. I mean, I understand it seats only 40,000 people, but, hey, <laughs> it's 15,000 more than the Chargers, right? Sure. Anyway, Ron, you're first lieutenant and Raider Nation, all right? Where do they go next? Where do they go in 2019. Well, if the league lets them, I, I think Sam Boyd is is probably the way to go. Uh, quite frankly, you know they they get established there. They they you know drive up the enthusiasm a little bit. Uh, the, certainly, the hockey team has been through the roof out there in Vegas uh, mm-hmm. in terms of fan support. Uh, but something in the bottom of my belly tells me that they in the city of Oakland will make a deal and they'll stay one more year in that stadium because uh, the city will find a way to make some money out of it. And the Raiders may be over, uh, you know, over a barrel, especially if the team is is good. You know, if they if they have a particularly good and competitive team, which is possible, uh, do you really want to be playing in a forty thousand seat uh, stadium? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in the end, I think they probably play one more year in uh, Oaktown. The Raiders over a barrel? Never, Ron. Hard no. to believe, isn't no. it? Hard to believe. Well, uh, I know where we're going next. As to the University of Oklahoma, as we always do this time of year in the weeks leading up to the draft, we'll look at the top college producers of NFL talent. Now, we've already discussed the universities of Texas and Florida, so today we're going to move on to Oklahoma, a school that's had 45, 45 first-round draft picks in NFL history with Heisman Trophy winner Baker Mayfield in all probability number 46 next month, Guzman. Yeah, Clark, there are a small handful of schools that have had more first-round picks than Oklahoma, but few have had more hardware. Mayfield is the sixth Heisman winner from Oklahoma. The Sooners have also had five Outland Trophy winners, three Butkus winners, three Thorpe Award winners, and two Lombardi Trophy winners. 
you know, Oklahoma's last Heisman Trophy winner, uh, quarterback Sam Bradford, was the first overall pick of the 2010 draft. Hall of Famer Leroy Selman and Billy Sims also were first overall picks of NFL drafts. Now, I'm, I'm not sure Mayfield's going to be the first pick of this draft, but he does figure to go in that rush of quarterback near the top of the first round. And by the way, the, his selection would end a four-year drought of first-rounders for the Sooners. Okay, Goose, um, question for you. If I'm an NFL team shopping Oklahoma for talent, is there one particular position that I should be looking at? Yeah, without question, running back. Adrian Peterson is on a Hall of Fame track in his career with three Russian titles and an NFL MVP award. DeMarco Murray was a third-round draft pick out of Oklahoma. He won a Russian title in 2014 with the Cowboys. Billy Sims is another of the first overall picks off the Oklahoma campus. He looked every bit a potential Hall of Famer in his first few seasons before knee injury shortened his career. Steve Owens was a Heisman winner at Oklahoma, the first wow. Detroit Lion in history to rush for 1,000 yards in a season. Greg Pruitt, Joe Washington were uh, Oklahoma draft picks, pro bowlers, and both Steve Sewell and David Overstreet were past first-round picks. They are loaded at running back. Yeah, wow, they really are loaded. You mean, of, the, of all those guys, Ron, you know who I remember the most? Joe Washington. Remember that Monday night game against the Patriots in the rain when yeah. he was with the Colts? Went yeah. all over the field, gave me scored touchdowns, running, <laughs> right. receiving, returning kickoffs. I love that guy. Anyway, um, Ron, uh, with, with all the success Oklahoma's had on the field, and, and Goose just got who went down a litany of running backs here, uh, and at the draft table, does it surprise you that they've only had, the Sooners have only had two pro football Hall of Famers, and that would be Selman and wide receiver Tommy McDonald? That's yeah, odd, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is pretty odd when you, when you, you look at that list as, that Goose alluded to of all those award winners. I mean, every award, major award there was in, uh, in college football, you know, they have multiple winners at every one of them. So you would think yeah. so. And Billy Sims always yeah. seemed to me, you know, for a while there, you, you, who didn't think Billy Sims was going to end up in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. Uh, you know, didn't. didn't work out uh but i bet goose could make a case for him if he had to oh absolutely yeah <laughs> and it might be pretty about a month <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. and it might be a pretty strong case so uh you know it, it is sort of interesting and and of course you know they had the guy who always thought he was going to go to the hall of fame was brian bosworth who, who <laughs> turns out you know didn't go any didn't go anywhere as it turns out <laughs> He's still chasing Bo Jackson. Um, you know, I look down this list, Ron, and, and I see a guy. I just didn't see a couple of people actually here, but you must have a soft spot in your heart for the Sooners because see a couple guys here that jump out. One of them is Kenny King. Oh, he yeah. caught an 80-yard touchdown pass, as you remember, in the 81 Super Bowl to help your Raiders win their second Lombardi trophy. Um, and then I, I, I look at another guy here, Reggie Kinlaw. And they got him in the 12th round in 79? Yeah. I think it was 12th round. And, and he went to start at nose tackle for two Raider Super Bowl champions. Um, but more than that, remember what Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf told us uh, once that, uh, and this is before he was with Green Bay, of course, but Ron said when he was with Oakland, he called Reggie Kinlaw one of his favorite draft picks. So I said, who are the guys you like? Reggie Kinlaw came right out of his mouth immediately. Yeah, yeah well, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I was... Uh uh, this is back in the day when you could actually be friends with players. Kenny King and I were pretty good friends. Uh, he was a hilarious guy. He was a really great guy to be around. Great player. Made a tremendous play in the in the Super Bowl that everybody remembers, of course. Um, but Kinlaw was a key guy in in, uh, in Ron's opinion and in the opinion of a lot of other guys. Uh, you know, in the, two of their Super Bowl uh, victories. You know, he he was a really undersized guy when you looked at him. You know, he wasn't that much bigger than uh, than I am, really. A little wider, yeah. but you know, you just sort of looked at him. So this guy's going to play what position? Really? Nose tackle? Right. You know, uh, you know he, he, he was like half of Ted Washington. Yeah, right. uh, but he was so quick. I mean, he was damn near unblockable and really smart. Really, really smart. 
uh, a player. You know, but I got to tell you guys honestly, when I think of Oklahoma and Oklahoma first rounders, uh, this will say more about me probably than anything else. But the guy who always comes to mind for me is the aptly named Joe Don Looney. Oh how, yeah, Absolutely. how in the hell was he the twelfth pick yep. in the nineteen sixty four draft <laughs> by the Giants? You know, this is a guy who started off at Texas. First semester, four Fs and a D, gets chucked. Goes to TCU where his dad was a star. Gets chucked. Goes to the Camera Junior College, becomes a star, ends up at Oklahoma. He's an All-American in 62 and 63 after three games. Bud Wilkinson looks at him and says, get chucked. Still, he ends up as a number one pick. The Giants have him for 28 days, and they, try, they <laughs> trade him away to the Colts. A year later, he's in Detroit, and his coach says to him, I want you to, Harry Gilmer tells him to take a play into the quarterback, and he looks at him and he says, if you wanted a messenger boy, call Western Union. (laughs) (laughs) That was the appropriately named Joe Don. Exactly, 12th pick of the draft. Well, Ron Borges didn't go to Oklahoma, but I do know this, we're going to hear from him sooner, rather than get that sooner, rather than later. So I guess that makes him qualified. Ron is here with his Borges or Bogus. And what's it going to be this week, Ron? Borges? Bogus? Or a little both? A little bit of bogus, I think. At this week's owners' meetings in Orlando, the Viking head coach Mike Zimmer told the assembled media that despite dropping uh, a fully guaranteed $84 million bucks on Kirk Cousins while unloading Case Keenum, the quarterback who led the Vikings to a 13-3 and record in the NFC Championship game, he didn't look at the 2018 season as, quote, Super Bowl or bust. Well, perhaps he should talk to the guy whose name is on that $84 million check. Viking owner Ziggy Wilf, who I can assure you was thinking Super Bowl or bust. To think out of the else is bogus. Why? <laughs> because owners, A, are impatient, B, difficult, and most importantly, C, not that enthused to pay somebody $84 million at the head coach's insistence and then not do better than they did the year before. Bad form. In theory, Cousins has three years to get the Vikings to the Super Bowl. But if it takes him that long, Mike Zimmer may not be around for the ride. Considering the job Zimmer has done, that too would be bogus, but certainly not without precedent. Every year there seems to be half a dozen openings or more, with some guys not able to save themselves even when they reach the postseason. To go 13-3 and last year with Case Keenum under center, and then backslide with an $84 million replacement? Super Bowl or bust, my friend. <laughs> Mike Zimmer is about to learn a harsh lesson of NFL existence. Ron, Jimmy Johnson was fired after winning a Super Bowl. Marty Schottenheimer was fired after a 14-win season. Tony Dungy got booted after a playoff season. Does Mike Zimmer need a history lesson before he takes his team to training camp? You know what Mike needs, Gooseman? He needs a subscription to the Talk of Fame Network, where history <laughs> is our business. Because you're right. If he doesn't see what's coming, it is a train with a really large horn. <laughs> he, is, he better win. He better win. <laughs> well, we've heard about the Oklahoma Sooners. Now get ready to hear about the best Cleveland Browns not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's coming up when we return with Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. John McClain wasn't the only Hall of Fame voter at this week's league meetings. Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer was there too, and she's here with us today to help us with our Best Not in Canton series. As you should know, we're making stops in all 32 NFL cities and talking to Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring omissions for each of their towns. So today, today that stop is, well, it's Cleveland, just an hour's drive north of Canton. Mary Kay, welcome back. And you know what? Welcome back by popular demand. We love having you on here. 
And I love being here, guys. Thanks for having me. There we go. <laughs> you got it. Okay, Mary Kay, who is Cleveland's most glaring omission from the Pro Football Hall of Fame? And don't tell me Joe well, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys know the name that, you know, the most controversial name, the name that has come up uh, so many times in the past is, of course, Art Modell. And, you know, I mean, you have to mention that name at your own risk in Cleveland. <laughs> I mean, it is still the danger zone when you talk about Art Modell. I mean, people are not over it yet, and um, it's just something that is always going to be there as a painful memory in the history of Cleveland sports. Should that be enough to keep him out of Canton? You know what? Since I lived through it, I, I actually think yes. I, I do believe so, because, uh, you know, I just watched that sort of rip out the heart of the city, and, uh, you know, I would have thought back then that, uh, that it would have been more likely that you could really remove the terminal tower from Cleveland easier than you could remove the Cleveland Browns. And uh, it was just really, really hard to watch what that did to so many people in Cleveland. And uh, it was just a dark period. And, and yes, from having lived through it and watching the, the pain of the fans uh, during that time, I, I do believe so. Well, of course, like you, like you mentioned, he is such a lightning rod. You know, one guy who's not a lightning rod who people are already trying to put in the Hall of Fame and he's barely retired is Joe Thomas. Uh, uh, you know, obviously he was kind of trapped on a lot of bad teams. Uh, do you fear at all that, that some of his greatness as a player may uh, have a hard time battling against, uh, from a Hall of Fame perspective against uh, the types of teams that he was stuck on? You know what? I actually don't think so. I, I really don't think so because his credentials are so astounding that I just don't see any way uh, that that he could be kept out. In fact, I think that he's got a fantastic chance of being a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, when you just look from the standpoint of he's one of just you know very very few people that have ever made the Pro Bowl in their first ten seasons. Uh, there's a, just a very very small group of those people. Uh, you know, the fact that he, he had to pass block even more than normal because, you know, the Browns fell behind so often and, and were quite often having to, to get back in the game. So the fact that he was able to hold off pass rushers the way that he did uh, over all of those years and give up so few sacks, I just don't, don't think that there's any question that he's a Hall of Famer, and I think there's a good chance he's a first ballot. Hey, Mary Kay, I, I want to go back to Modell. Because, honestly, I don't understand what's going on with him in, in Cleveland. And for this reason, I, I was in Baltimore when the Colts left in 1984. And you talk about the pain of the fans. I mean, they ripped the heart and soul out of that city. I'm talking about Bob Ursay when he moved that team to Indianapolis. But you know what? Over 20 years later, people got over it um, because they had another team. They had the Baltimore Ravens, but they got over it, and they're over it. It's been over 20 years for the Cleveland Browns. And unlike Baltimore, they kept their name, they kept their history, they kept the numbers, the uniforms, everything, and yet people still equate Art Modell with the devil there. I, I don't get it. I mean, when is there sort of a statute of limitations to move on, move forward? You know, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I think it would help if there were a winning football team here, but if you think about it, it has been nothing but grief and pain and agony for Browns fans, really, since this team returned in 1999. It has, there has been no joy. There has been, you know, there has been so, I can't even think of the amount of victory since 1999. I can probably count them on 
both hands a, a couple of times over. But, I mean, really, just so few victories. Uh, just just one thing after another, uh, and it's just been really, really bad since he left. I mean, since he but, took this but team. But that's not Art's fault. Nice that's not like Art's it. fault. I mean, that's not his fault. I know, but I'm just saying that, that there hasn't been, you know, those good feelings. I mean, even in Baltimore, you know, the Ravens were immediately good when they went to Baltimore. And they had a, they won a Super Bowl, and none of that happened has happened here. And so I think it is hard for people to forget. Is that yeah. is the fact that the team he moved to Baltimore won a Super Bowl? Is that kind of the dagger? Yeah. Yes. Question. I mean that that was horrible. I mean not not only that uh, did did the Browns team that basically Ozzie Newsome and Bill Belichick and those guys, you know, they really assembled that team and put that team together, and then it goes to Baltimore and wins a Super Bowl. I mean, that was just incredibly painful uh, for Browns fans to deal with here. Uh, but then, you know, then you've got Bill Belichick who left here and, of course, you know, goes on to become widely considered the greatest of all time. So uh, it's just been, uh, you know, sort of one thing after another in that regard. Uh, none of which has resulted in a happy ending for the Browns. I sense a trend there. Belichick leaving, <laughs> Ravens leaving, Ravens winning the Super Bowl, Belichick winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> Mary Kay, how was how was Ozzie Newsom received? Well, Ozzie is is still someone who who is just so highly thought of and well thought of in in Cleveland, and, and people just remember him uh, for those great playing days and for for his Hall of Fame career. So. Uh, he, he's very, very well received. I think more so than anything, the feeling in Cleveland is always uh, that Brown fans and a lot of people in Cleveland wish that he had been able to come back and do for Cleveland what he was able to do for Baltimore. Well, I got to ask you, Mary Kay. I know the last uh, one of the last times we had you on, I promised you that I would never raise this man's name again, uh, and it's certainly not a Hall of Fame, but I can't give up the temptation. Johnny Manziel is back! He's, dry, he's trying out for a couple of teams, and he says he's a new guy. And Do you sort of look from afar and kind of hope <clears throat> hope the best for him, or do you kind of hope that he ends up next to Art Modell in the ash heap of <laughs> football? Well, you know what? I, I always hope the best for, for anybody who's, you know, really trying hard to get it right and turn their lives around and, and do all the right things. And it seems like Johnny's trying to do that. But do you know what's happening here in Cleveland? There is this person named Baker Mayfield who could possibly end up here. And he reminds me so much of Johnny Manziel <laughs> that I'm thinking, no, we cannot do this here again. But uh, no, really, I, I, I don't. I don't think that, you know, when I see the headband and I see the, um, you know, the, the crotch grab and all those different sorts of things, I'm like, oh, I can't do this again. I've got to find, I've got to start my acting career. But, uh, <laughs> I but, thought she was talking uh, about you, yeah, those, were, <laughs> those were wild hey. times, and I'm just telling you right now, there, there is a little bit of Johnny Manziel in Baker Mayfield, just a, a little bit, not the... You know, not the substance abuse stuff, but, you know, the cockiness and some of that sort of thing. So, yeah, it'll be um, it'll be Johnny Manziel part two if that happens. <laughs> which, uh, which quarterback would you prefer? Well, you know what? For some reason, I cannot get Josh Allen out of my mind. And I've been thinking about this since the Senior Bowl when I went down there and I watched him there and I watched the footwork, I watched the cannon arm and the way the ball comes out and all those sorts of things. And he did remind me enough of what I saw down there from Carson Wentz in 2016 that even though, you know, I like some things about Sam Darnold, I like some things about 
uh, Josh Rosen, um, and there are things to like about Baker Mayfield, although I just can't embrace that. I can't wrap my <laughs> mind around it. Um, I, I really do. <laughs> I really do think that um, that. Gosh, I I would I might pick Josh Allen number one overall. I, I think that you know I've talked extensively to Jordan Palmer, and uh, you know he told me last week that he's never seen anyone like him. Uh, he feels he has sufficiently fixed the footwork, uh, shortened the stride so that the ball's coming out better, and uh, the accuracy should be improved. And they're not even going to start him for a year or two because Tyrod Taylor presumably will start for the Cleveland Browns for at least all of 2018. Be careful what you wish for, Mary Kay, because um, <laughs> I will remind you, we talked about uh, Ozzie Newsom on here, and remember the Ravens fell in love with Kyle Bowler's arm, and, and they always talked about when he was on his knees, he could throw a ball through the goalposts or um, through the uprights at 50 yards. And I just, every time I hear those stories, I go, oh, geez, just be careful, you know, when you fall in love with somebody's arm. But we had Tony on here, Tony Grossi. I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, and we asked him about, um, you know, who they would take at, at the number one pick. And he said a quarterback, and he thought probably Darnold. So I know who you like, but who do you think they will take at one? And could it be something other than a quarterback, or do you think it will be a quarterback? And if it is, which one would it be? I think it will be a quarterback. I, I would be shocked if it's not. And right now, if, if I had to put together a mock draft, I would put Sam Darnold in there. Uh, because I just think in the end uh, that that that's the you know the safer pick. I mean, if you put Sam Darnold and Josh Allen up against each other, there are a lot of things to like about both of them, and you can check off a lot of boxes. But you know, in the end, they might just look at that uh, that little bit of the accuracy issue and think that you know that that could be a little bit too much to overcome. So I think they would probably pick Darnold. Well, you know, Mary Kay, with their track record with quarterbacks, maybe they should take a quarterback with both of those picks. <laughs> you know, double, you know double, what? Doubles the chance. Hey, I would probably do it. I've been advocating that they take um, two quarterbacks in this draft. And, and you know, I know it, it sounds nuts. I probably wouldn't do it at one and four, but I would do it at, you know, one and 33 or one and 35. I'd come back and take a you know, a Lamar Jackson or a Mason Rudolph in the second round and, and try to get this thing settled once and for all. And if you end up with a couple of good quarterbacks, uh, you know, go ahead and trade one. Sure. Okay. Thanks so much for the time, and, and good luck. Good luck at the top of this year's draft. <laughs> I think you might need it. Thanks Thank again. You. Thanks, Mary Kay. Thanks, Mary That was Hall of Fame voter Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and a favorite of ours. Up next, it's former Steelers defensive tackle Casey Hampton. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest, Casey Hampton, was one of the best nose tackles of his time. More than that, he was a rarity in the year of salary cap and free agency, mostly because he was a one-team player. Now, he spent all 12 of his seasons with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he helped them win two Super Bowls and was named to the franchise's all-time team. But he was also a two-time All-America at the University of Texas, the 19th overall pick of the 2001 draft, and a five-time Pro Bowler. And today, well, today he's our guest. Casey Hampton, thanks so much for being here. Man, I appreciate you guys having me. 
Casey, the, the 3-4 scheme has been widely used throughout the NFL for the last 40 years, yet only one nose tackle has been rewarded with a bust in Canada, and that would be Curly Culp. And it took him 27 years to get in as a senior candidate in 2013. One in 40 years. That's a terrible return on investment in the nose tackle position. Do you think Culp has officially opened the Canton's door for nose tackles? I definitely hope so. I mean, I think there's a lot of guys who um, who through the years probably really deserve him, but just don't have the stats to um, add up to getting to Canton. But, you know, like I said, the nose tackle business is more so of, it isn't about the stats and things like that. So I, I definitely hope that they start looking at nose tackle, nose tackle rock definitely. Well, Casey, as you mentioned, uh, generally nose tackles, uh, they don't have uh, stats. It's not a stats position. Uh, you had, I believe, only nine career uh, sacks in 12 seasons, yet you were still selected one of the greatest players in franchise history. So minus stats, how do you, a guy who actually knows what you're looking at, how do you judge the play of a nose tackle? I mean, first of all, man, you got to be a stout guy. It just, it just starts off with not getting knocked off the ball. And um, being being consistent, you know, what I mean, just just out there, just being consistent, making sure that it takes a couple guys to block you, and um, making sure that your guys stay clean behind you. Make sure that your linebackers stay clean and they can run around and make plays. I mean, that, that's that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. Do you did you have a guy that you particularly once you were done playing yourself? Is there a guy you like watching now play that position? Uh, I kind of check everybody out, but I, I think that. Nobody plays the true nose tackle like I played it um, anymore because the game has changed so much. I mean, I, I was like a two-gapper all the time. That's what I did. And I don't think guys really do that anymore. I think it's more so up the field and, and kind of get to the quarterback because it's such a passing league now. So I think that um, what I did is that almost extinct, man. It's, it's like it's a entirely different. It's still a nose tackle, but it's entirely different the way they play it now. How much pride did you take in being a two-gapper? Those guys are rare. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it was fun, man. You know, um, it's definitely fun playing the position, but when, when we're as good as we were for that long period of time, it's definitely fun playing that type of scheme when, when you're winning your defense is, is, is doing well. You know what I mean? It would probably been a lot tougher if it wasn't as good, but when your defense is playing as well as we did when I was there, it, it, make, it makes it a lot easier. Well, Casey, earlier you talked about stout guys. Uh, you played alongside another stout guy, and that would be Sean Rogers in that 4-3 at Texas. But when you went to Pittsburgh, to the Steelers, uh, they plugged you in at nose tackle. So I guess my question is, how much of an adjustment was that for you sliding over the center? And, and how long did it take you before you really got comfortable getting blocked by what I, I think at times could be three players? <laughs> It was definitely a tough, tough adjustment at first. You know, coming from University of Texas, my, you know, my last couple seasons there, leading the team in tackles. You know, Coach Bull Reese, you know, one of my favorite coaches and, and defensive coordinator at Texas. You know, his whole his whole thing was a linebackers on scholarship too. So let them go ahead and do what they need to do. So we ain't no keeping no lineman off. Nobody gonna make the play. So <laughs> you can only so you can only imagine you can only imagine the the, the type of fun we had playing that type of defense and then. Going to um, Pittsburgh and and um, you know pretty much just trying to keep the linebackers clean. You know what I mean. Be disruptive when you can, but at the same time, 
having to keep the the linebackers off the um, linebackers, it was a huge adjustment. Because it's something I never really had to do before, but it's something I t- ended up taking a lot of pride in. You know, um, um, I had a lot of great linebackers to play behind me, and um, it, it was just fun to see those guys go out there and make plays and things like that. That's what I really pretty much got my joy out of is watching those guys do their thing and watching our defense be successful. How long what was the hard, you, what was, go ahead. How long before you felt comfortable as a nose tackle? Uh, it took a while. It took, it, it probably took into my second year, um, to realize that every play isn't for me to make. And, uh, I'm not supposed to be out there trying to make plays, just play within, playing within the defense. You know, it, it's tough, man, when you're used to making plays and you're getting up the field and doing your thing and, and, and you're pretty good at it. And they actually do something entirely different. But um, you just got to be unselfish, man, and, and and see the bigger picture. I think um, having uh, Dick LeBeau there was huge. You know, being an unselfish guy, being defensive coordinator, being one of the greatest coordinators of all time, and being one of the best player coaches, and understand and understanding uh, understanding guys really, really well. I think that helped me out a whole whole lot. Casey, Texas is one of the great college producers of NFL talent. You were one of the 44 first-round draft picks to come out of uh, Austin. When you go to Texas, is that the expectation that an NFL career will follow? I don't know about now, but I know when I went there. Was. <laughs> I know, I know definitely when I when I went there. That's definitely what it was, and I think those guys are really getting back to that now. I mean, it's a hell of a program, man. I mean, it's second to none, and um. With the resources we have, undoubtedly we should get the best players in the country. And um, I think the best players in the country, I think that's what, at the end of the day, that's what they want to do, play in the league. And, and I think the ex- expectations should be high for those guys, and I think those guys should look forward to that. You know, you, you go to school and do your thing, ain't, ain't no question about that. But the type of guys that we should get at the University of Texas, I mean, they should have aspirations of playing in the NFL. Now, you played in, in three Super Bowls in 12 seasons. You had four tackles and a sack in your first Super Bowl, that 21-10 win over the Seahawks. Uh, in what was really uh, Jerome Bettis' homecoming game in Detroit, uh, what's, your, what's your most vivid memory of that game? Uh, it's, it's, it's a few. Uh, I think, first of all, man, just, just being in the Super Bowl for the first time, it, it was just a big deal. But I think we were in the tunnel, man, and, and – uh, Jerome Bettis, we all in there getting ready to, to run out. And um, Joey Porter goes to Jerome and tells him that the team wants him to run out first in front of us, man. And it's just him going out there and us going, us going out there and meeting him and seeing how fired up he was, man, and to be at the, to be at the crib and be at home and playing that Super Bowl. I mean, that was a, that was a great feeling. And, and, and definitely after the game, celebrating it with my son and with my family, man, it, it's, just, it's just something that, Something that you'll never forget. You know, what I mean, it ain't no question about that. Something that you never forget, and being able to enjoy that with your teammates and your family—that's that's the thing that I, I would probably remember most—is uh, enjoying it with my family. Uh, Casey, and, and we're speaking with former Steelers defensive tackle Casey Hampton on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at Talk of Fame Net. And Casey, let's fast forward uh, three years uh, to another Super Bowl, and uh, that would be the win over the Arizona Cardinals, that 27-23 victory. You had a pair of tackles in that game. Um, but there were a lot of dramatic moments in that one, including James Harrison's 100-yard interception return at the end of the first half and, of course, the game-winning touchdown catch by Santonio San Holmes at the end of the game. 
But I'll ask you the same question that Ron asked you earlier about uh, the, the Super Bowl in Detroit. What is your most vivid memory from the defeat of the Arizona Cardinals? <laughs> well, of course, those two plays you just said, you know, and, um, James Harrison uh, picking that ball off, even though he's supposed to be um, blitzing on that play and coming. He just <laughs> did his own thing and came out of there and, and picked the ball off. One of the most amazing plays in Super Bowl history. And it's not a, it's not even, um, it's not even a question about that. But the play, I mean, San Antonio Holmes catch was great. I mean, that 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 sealed the deal for us, man. But when when Larry Fitzgerald caught that ball and and took it down the field, man, I mean, that that I mean that that I felt like that was the defining moment. You know, what I mean, I, I I'm gonna say I thought it was over, but I was, oh man, I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it and. And for us to come back from that, you know, that was, that was huge for when Larry caught that ball and, 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 and took, it, took it in for a touchdown, that was a game-changing event, man. That was, that was probably my most vivid memory. You know, it's funny. We, we had Ben Roethlisberger on here, and he said of that Holmes catch, he said, you know, I really shouldn't have thrown that ball. And when I threw it, I went, oh, man, that's going to be intercepted. And if you watch that pass, he threw it in absolutely the most perfect spot for Holmes to catch. It was a great catch, but it was also a terrific, terrific pass. Oh man, I'm gonna tell you, man. San Antonio is one of the most underrated guys um, that you can know. I just, I just hung out with him on about like last month, man, and, and just talking about it, man. It was an excellent catch, and just for him to be able to to tap, you know, those guys do that so easily now. But back then, it was just a huge play. Did, did you think Harrison was gonna make the end zone? He was running out of gas by the yard. <laughs> I was praying for. It. I was, I was, I was actually. I, I man, I couldn't. I couldn't believe he did it first of all, but then when he was going, it's kind of like that, that that out of gas, full speed running down there with him. But you don't have nothing left. All you can do is all you can do is cheer from behind. Is that, is that, <laughs> is that type of deal, man? Just cheer from behind and run and hope he get in because. I'm behind everybody. I can't block nobody. <laughs> okay, so your your last Super Bowl was the only one the Steelers lost. You had a single tackle in that game. That. 31-25 loss to the Packers. And that game evolved into a shootout between Roethlisberger and Aaron Rodgers who combined throw for almost 600 yards and five touchdowns. What was your most vivid memory of that game? I mean, uh, don't remember the whole lot. When you lose those type of games, you put everything into it and, and you lose those type of games, it's, it's like you try to forget about them. But um, I think just at the end of the game, man, when the confetti came down and I seen Aaron Rodgers put his hands in there and uh, being victorious, man. That, that's that's the lasted memory that's kind of stuck in my mind, man. It was just sickening to me. Something I never forget and something I really don't like talking about. But that that was the thing that I mostly remember about about that game. You uh, you mentioned Coach uh, Coach LeBeau a few minutes ago. Uh, he's a good friend of ours, and and. Uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about him before, but I'd like to get a player's perspective on this, was, you know, as you know, he's famous for many things, including uh, reciting the night before Christmas on the night before Christmas. Um, the first time he launched into that, what did you think when you were sitting in the room? Did you sort of scratch in your head and say, where are we going? Or what did you think? What do you, what do you mean? You know, when he recites that the poem the night before Christmas uh, to his players, uh I was just wondering what you thought when Coach LeBeau would stand up and do that. First of all, man, LeBeau is like one of the best guys you could ever meet. 
and never know. Like, not only, like, just being a coach, just being a person, man, and just being a, a, a cool guy. I mean, anything he does, man, is it, just first class. And it's like nothing that he does, it amazes you. But when he did that for the first time, man, and for him to memorize it from the way he really does it and he presents it to the team, it's absolutely amazing. You're like you, you, It's like a type of thing where you, even if you see it, you have to kind of be there to really realize, you know, how great of a deal it is, man. And um, just a great guy, man. And that's, that's a hell of an experience for a player to be able to experience for a guy who's been in the league that long and been around football that long, man, to be that passionate about anything that he does. Hey, Casey, thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. Man, I appreciate you guys, man. Thanks, thanks Casey. Casey. Take care. Thanks. That was former Steelers nose tackle Casey Hampton. Up next, it's our two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network, where it's time for this. Yes, sir, we're going to the lightning round of the show, otherwise known as the two-minute drill. So, gentlemen, start your clock. Ten years from now, what will we say about Indomitian Sioux? Great player, but not worth that $100 million contract the Dolphins gave him to free agency. Two words. Who's Sue? <laughs> Mark Davis says John Gruden calls the shots in Oakland. Good idea or bad? Bad. He inherited a team in Tampa capable of winning the Super Bowl, and the more he put his thumbprints on it over time, the worse it got. Clarky, do you think it's a good idea that a guy who looks like Chucky is calling the shots? <laughs> no. Uh, what does JPP do for the Tampa Bay Bucks? He brings an explosive pass rush. <laughs> Becomes a human fireworks display, but hopefully only on top of the quarterback. <laughs> wow, remarkable. Le'Veon Bell, Bobby Bell, Ricky Bell, or Albert Bell? That's an easy one. Only one Spartan on that list. <laughs> oh, oh, Which God. one? Who is it? Oh, yeah, Le'Veon. <laughs> uh, easy one. Only one of those guys has rung the doorbell at Canton, and that's Bobby Bell. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, the chances of Le'Veon Bell, that Spartan, gaining a long-term deal with Pittsburgh are... Zero. This league doesn't give second contracts to running backs. Exactly. Long gone, especially if he has another season of over 300 carries at the age of 26. When Danny Amendola signed with Miami, he left SI swimsuit model Olivia Culpo behind. So whom will Amendola miss most? Culpo, Tom Brady, or Ron? Legal seafoods. <laughs> I would have said Culpo if he was still in Foxborough, but he's in South Beach, so I'd say me. <laughs> Jim Irsay says Andrew Luck has, quote, turned the corner in rehab. Why should we believe him? We shouldn't. I stopped listening to all Ursays when they left Baltimore. <laughs> yes, I cannot think of any reason to believe him. Tough on defense. The Rams or Stormy Daniels? The Rams have Marcus Peters, Akeem Tlaib, and Nana Kamsu. Tram. Trump doesn't. Stormy Daniels. She's more than a tropical storm. <laughs> John Gruden. There's that man again. Says he thinks Colin Kaepernick will be in camp soon. What camp? I'm guessing the Raiders camp. <laughs> Summer camp. But it's a canoe camp, not a football camp. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank Casey Hampton, George Stewart, Mary Kay Cabin, and John McLean for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for joining us. If you'd like to listen to this or any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here, and we hope you will be, too.